Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hi, Mark Homer here for Mark My Words. This podcast is going to deal with how I would analyse a deal. Typically, when looking at a new deal or investment or asset class, I have a series of points that I look at to satisfy myself that the investment that I'm looking at is going to provide fruit and give me the return that I'm looking for. The first thing that I'd look at when I'm analysing a deal is how much cash flow the asset will generate. I really focus on cash flow because it's the one metric that A, keeps you safe, B, it will continue to come in into the future. So you do the work once and you continue to be paid for it. So you're not swapping time for money and therefore it allows you to scale. And the reason it allows you to scale is because your time isn't continually made up of having to buy another asset and sell it or or find an asset, add value to it, and then get somebody to buy it. The cash flow just keeps on rolling in, irrespective of how much time you're spending on the asset. And for me, that's a very, very powerful place to be. I'd much rather get an income worth, say, six, seven, eight percent of the value of an asset, but have that income come in every year rather than have a one hit of 30 or 40 percent and have that money placed with me once rather than receiving it on a monthly basis. So I'd take a much lower cash flow for the repeat nature of it over a big capital gain. So what is a reasonable income or cash flow to be getting on an asset? Well, the first thing to think about is whether an asset actually produces an income or not, because there are a lot of different asset classes which actually don't generate any income whatsoever. The capital side, the growth can be very attractive, but there's nothing coming in on a monthly basis. And that's something to look at and to be aware of because lots of people look at how much an asset will go up or how much they're going to make out of it, but they forget the fact that they didn't get any income for those three, four or five years. And that dramatically reduces the IRR, the internal rate of return, which is effectively a rate of return which also considers the amount of time that your money has been invested. That's an important distinction, and I'm going to come back to that a little bit later on. So what cash flow does the the asset generate? Well, there are lots of assets like gold, watches, different commodities, wine, that don't generate any income whatsoever. The reason they don't generate any income is because they're not being used. It's not a company that's generating profits. There's no property there which is is receiving which you're receiving rent for. They're just assets that sit there, and over time they they should go up in value. But there's no income stream, and of course, it is important to remember that and to focus on the fact that your overall return will be dramatically reduced if you haven't received any income along the way. So, what kind of 
income stream would you expect from a property? Well, a single let property, you'd want at least a 6% income, I think. Now, that's going to be very hard in central London. In, in fact, pretty much impossible. But if you took the yearly rent received on a, on a single let property and divide it by the capital value, plus any refurb you've got to do, you'd really want that gross number to equal more than 6%. And a lot of areas of the Midlands or the north of England would achieve that, and you'd be north of that number. I think if you're looking at a HMO, they can be much higher. The upside with HMOs is obviously you're, you're renting each room out individually. Therefore, the density and the intensification of the use of the building increases, and therefore the, the rent should increase dramatically. And because the rent has increased so much, you're going to get a much higher income stream on a HMO type property. Now, the thing to remember with a HMO is there are going to be other costs like council tax, utilities that are going to be on top of any other costs that you would have with a single let. So you'd expect the cash flow or that yield or the, the yearly rent as a percentage of the value to be much higher with a HMO. You'd need it to be. And with most HMOs that I look at, I would want the income stream or the, the yield to be at least 10% of the property value. Actually, most of the bigger buildings that I'm looking at, they're in excess of 15%. Now, that's a very, very strong income stream. And I'd say it's, it's, it's stronger than almost any other investment that I know. That may net out after costs at, at more like, I don't know, 11% maybe, and then you've got your mortgage to come off that. But that is seriously high when compared with, with other types of investment. You might get a similar result from serviced accommodation where you're renting a, an apartment on a nightly basis. Clearly, the intensification of use is even higher and the income stream is much higher on a, an investment like that. So you'd want a, a much higher yield associated with that. But of course, you're moving more towards a hotel model. You probably are, maybe you're spending more time managing it. Therefore, you may be swapping time for money on an increased basis. So they're all things to consider. But that cash flow really is where this all starts. And for me, it's probably the most important variable when working out if an investment is going to be any good or not. The next important factor when analysing an investment is the equity. What equity do I get now when I buy the property or the watch or the gold or the, the share in the company? What, what equity do I think I've got in it now? And what is the likelihood that that equity will grow over a period of time? Equally, what is the risk that that equity will reduce and, and maybe go to zero in riskier times? And, you know, how susceptible is this investment to a recession, to turning bad during a recession? And what is the risk that the investment will actually turn out being worth zero because of a recession or a, an issue with a business or litigation or whatever it might be? So these are all really, really important variables that need to be considered. Clearly, when buying an investment property, this risk is reduced. The likelihood of the value of a a residential property reducing more than 20-25% in a recession is pretty low. It's not happened many times in the last 100 years. And history has told us that the value of these residential properties usually comes back relatively quickly after a recession. That can be different with a commercial property. Commercial properties during recessions, 
they can drop 50%, 60%. I saw instances around our area in Peterborough where properties dropped 80% in value, but they were they were commercial buildings that lost tenants. So the upside can be a lot greater with those, but equally so can the downside. So I'd say for people earlier on in their journey, they'd be better looking at residential properties versus commercial. But for scale, for enabling you to put bigger sums of money to work quicker, commercial property can be better. But I'll, I'll talk about that in more detail a little bit later on. Staying on the property theme, development projects are one of the best ways to add big chunky equity or make big lumps of money quite quickly when purchasing properties and, and clearly developing them into something else. Now, development projects are generally riskier Generally, they don't have an income stream. They're very, very lumpy. But on the capital side, they can be very, very lucrative. I think the risk during times of recession on development projects is much greater. I would be more concerned about a development project going wrong during a recession period than a typical rental property, be it commercial or residential, because usually during a recession, you just continue to rent an investment property out and the value may come down, but it usually goes up again. As long as you keep a tenant in there, well, it probably doesn't affect you too much. Whereas with a development project, actually it can affect you a hell of a lot because the properties that you've... If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. Developed might not be saleable at that point, and if you can't get the income or the, the capital injection when you sell those properties because you can't sell them then your business might go bust and that can really hurt you so when money dries up when liquidity reduces development projects are much more at risk than typical rental properties so there on the capital side that's another big element that i would focus on when looking at the capital side of an investment other asset classes behave quite differently from the ones I've I've just outlined. Gold, for instance, moves up or down in a very cyclical way and is very much affected by how well the economy is doing, how much uncertainty is out there. And generally speaking, as the economy turns down or growth reduces or people get concerned that there's going to be instability or maybe even a recession, the value of gold and maybe silver as well generally increases. So the demand side equation on gold is quite different from, from properties and, and maybe equities as well. Clearly, there's no income stream with gold. 
it is very much a, a capital-based strategy. And I wouldn't say it goes up, you know, by a uniform amount or or by a steady amount every year, as properties can do. Gold is 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 much more affected by sentiment and how well the rest of the economy is doing. And there's an inverse relationship, effectively. So as the rest of the economy does does badly, gold goes up, gold and silver go up. So there are things to, to look at and, and focus on. I think it's also important when looking at investments. Other types of investments that are very capital-based might be watches. Clearly, gold watches are more affected by recession or by the economy doing well, much in, in the same way that just buying gold bars or Krugerrands is. But with watches, you've got the added complication of what the model is. And the value of a watch is much more closely linked to the scarcity of that particular model or that special edition. So with watches, the supply side of the equation is a lot more relevant. You may get a watch where they've only made a thousand of them. Over time, it's almost guaranteed to go up over the long term. And I've seen that happen many, many times in the past. Yes, it is affected by how well the economy is doing. Clearly, there'll be less demand for expensive watches if the people who buy those watches can't afford to buy them or are concerned that they might not be able to afford to buy them in the future because the economy is not looking so good. And, and I think that's a very important point, by the way. A lot of this is perception, especially during the credit crunch. We saw many people reduce purchases of luxury items because they expected next year to be earning less or in the future to be earning less. But but actually, most of those people just continue to be earning the same or, or their income grew or their asset value grew. So a lot of this is based on the perception of what's likely to happen in the future. Wine can be very similar to watches in that the value of it can be quite closely linked to how rare it is or how in how short supply. And of course, these are very subtle nuances. The, the year that the wine was produced by which chateau, which region, clearly if it was from Bordeaux in France and it was from a, a great vineyard and it was a great year, like, I don't know, a 95 or a 96, that's going to have a massive impact. You could have a, an older wine which didn't come from such a good year and, and maybe not such a, a good vineyard, but maybe in the same region and actually maybe even taste better. But the value of it will be significantly less. So they're very important drivers of the, the value of wine. Again, though, there's no income stream coming from wine. The value of wine is, is quite closely linked to how well people feel they are doing, but it can be seen as a hedge. If the stock market's going wrong, if properties are going wrong, people will often put their money into physical assets, things they can touch and hold and feel. And wine might be one of those along with gold. There are important elements in the world economy, which drive the value of wine as well. The Chinese got a taste for wine a few years ago. They mix it with Coca-Cola and might drink a 15,000 pound bottle of Chateau Petrus with, um, with, with a can of Coke. There's very much a, a lifestyle and an aspirational label attached to drinking expensive bottles of wine in Shanghai. Maybe the Europeans wouldn't drink it with Coke. I think most of the world wouldn't, but it's suddenly become fashionable over there. There's a lot of demand and that has drawn the prices northwards significantly. Certainly 
post 2010, 2011, I'd say in, in the last couple of years, actually the value of some of these wines has, has come off quite a bit. What tends to happen is a little bit like a, a, a talking about hot spots in another one of these podcasts, you know, where you have the Olympics going to a certain area and the value of properties increases a lot. Things go too far and, you know, developers get involved. They put the prices of their properties up and, and they get a lot of the upside based on this expected future return. Well, the same thing happened with wine. The vineyards got in on it. The entrepreneur kind of prices increased a lot. So the vineyards were able to get a lot of that growth on the effectively the first production and the first time that these bottles were sold. So they took a lot of that profit early on. And we're seeing a lot of those bottles that have been sold in the last two or three years by the best vineyards actually go down in value because the price of them was too high in the first place. Those vineyards have got quite greedy. So it's important to understand all those dynamics when analysing an investment, certainly from the capital side. Other asset classes like oil or other commodities like copper, well, they can be driven by production and by which parts of the world are looking to use those commodities. So with oil, clearly, it's very closely linked to what the world demand is. Obviously, China is using a lot of oil. India, in production, they're using a lot of raw materials. So they might be using copper. They might be using steel. All of the, the value of all of those commodities went up as China and India increased their industrial production and really got going with being the world's factory. Effectively, China, China especially is now the world's factory and they're producing a, a lot of the world's goods. So as world demand for goods has increased, Chinese demand for raw materials and commodities has increased and that has driven the price significantly. Oil is a little bit different in that the, there is effectively a cartel which determines the supply of a good portion of the world's oil one of those cartels is called OPEC. It controls the supply of Middle Eastern oil, particularly, and, and quite a bit of African oil as well. Those nations get together. They decide how much they're going to pump, i.e. how much oil they're going to, to release, how many barrels are going to go into the, the world oil market. And they decide that based on how much demand there is, and the underlying objective is to keep the price of oil high because those countries want to make good margins from the oil that they're selling. This legal cartel, OPEC, have kept the value of oil artificially high. But in the last few years, there's been significant disruption in that the shale oil revolution, the fracking has started, especially in the US reducing the production cost of oil significantly. They flooded the world market with oil. The value of oil has come down a lot. You've probably seen the, the price at the pump reduce significantly. And we've got into a situation where the likes of Saudi Arabia have decided that they're just going to keep pumping. They're not going to reduce production. So the price of oil has gone down even further because the Middle Eastern countries have effectively got themselves into a war with the American frackers. And clearly they've got deep pockets, they've 
been producing and selling oil for decades and decades. They know the American frackers are largely private companies. So what they're trying to do is send most of these companies bankrupt because they're having to produce now oil above the cost that they can get for it on the world market. Therefore, they're making a loss. And over a period of time, they expect these frackers to go bust. Therefore, the price of oil will increase. And Saudi Arabia, the Iraqis, the Kuwaitis, all of those Middle Eastern oil-rich nations will be able to have it away again by by making good profits from oil. So I've, I've gone in long on the price of oil, haven't had a great run so far, but I'm expecting over the medium term that that will come right. But remember, there's no income stream on an investment like that. Highly cyclical. And I only generally invest small amounts of money in things like that. I still find property so much more controllable, so much more predictable. And actually, my overall return since I've been investing in property since 2003 has been way, way higher. So, of course, that's still my core strategy. Another investment to focus on, certainly on the capital side, is equities within the stock market. Equities within the stock market are just companies which are are listed on, say, the FTSE or the, the, the FTSE 100 or the FTSE 250 or maybe AIM or the NASDAQ in the US. So all of those companies which are listed on those exchanges have a capital value. It's a very precise capital value. In fact, it's more precise than most other asset classes that I can think of. And of course, because of that, they're very liquid. There's a market for them. So those companies have a capital value. That capital value has been arrived at in quite a complex way over a period of time. And it's based on largely the future revenue streams that people expect that company to produce and therefore what they expect the future capital value of that share to become. Clearly, equities will usually create an income stream. As long as a company's making profits and they're, they're declaring a dividend, then usually there'll be an income stream. And I've spotted some higher than average income streams on, on stocks in recent times. I've liked Tesco, HSBC, done very well out of those, done less well out of some of the others. I've just bought into a, a very very small, relatively unknown walkie-talkie manufacturer. They've got themselves into quite a bit of trouble. I believe in the product. They've had to raise equity. Looks like they're going to have to raise more debt. They've come down from about £2 to about 15 pence, but looks like they're, they're turning the corner. Bought in at um, 17p a few weeks ago, and it looks like there's a takeover offer on the table that's just been announced uh, north of 25p, which would be quite good. That company's called Sapora. So they're probably worth having a look at. Clearly, these are, are very time-sensitive messages. You know, at the moment, we're in early November in 2016. We'll be in a, a, there'll be a different story uh, into 2017. And the things that I'll be investing in and looking at will have, have changed significantly. Generally, I do like, if I'm buying equities, I do like to buy the equities that have the income stream, that have the cash flow, because I think there's more chance that you're going to do okay out of them. During the early 2000s, we had the tech boom. Most of those technology companies weren't making any profits whatsoever. Because they weren't making any profits, some could argue that the value of those companies was actually nil. But of course, the market believed that the future potential for profits of these companies was massive. 
because, you know, a little bit like radio shares or, or daffodils, all of these investment bubbles that have looked very attractive over the years have largely been based on the expectation of large future profits and therefore a big capital gain. Most of the time, it doesn't happen. Yes, it happens to maybe 5-10% of the companies in the dot-com boom or maybe those involved in, in, in radio around that time, but most of them actually go bust. So it's not a particularly good bet when taken on the balance of probabilities. I think the best way to invest in equities is to pick proven companies that have got a great product, good history, but they're going through a relatively short-term issue. The media's bashing them like they did with BP because there was a big spill or maybe with VW where they've got an emissions scandal and the the amount of damages is uncertain or you've got, like, say, Standard Charter that was going through issues in the, in the Far East. But they're fundamentally, they were always good companies. And when the media really gets going on them and starts hitting them hard week after week, the public's perception of the value of those companies reduces. A lot of people will hit the sell button and ask questions later. That depresses the stock price below the real value of many of those companies. And I think therein lies an opportunity. You buy in when that sentiment is very negative, as long as you're buying into a good asset. Wait, and then with time, usually the sentiment turns positive, the media focuses on something else, confidence returns, and the value of the asset returns as well. There are lots of examples of that. In fact, just this morning, it's been announced that Donald Trump is the the new leader of the free world. Now, I'm not sure I'm a great supporter of him or his policies, if I actually knew what his policies were. But the advantage, or, or should I say the potential opportunity here, is that Trump is creating a lot of disruption, a lot of uncertainty. The stock markets are moving around a lot. The Mexican peso has plummeted this morning, clearly because he's going to be building his wall and getting them to pay for it. There are a lot in Mexico that are quite concerned about that, I presume, and, and, and a, lot in the, a lot of people in the world markets. So the Dow Jones has taken a hit. There's certainly going to be more opportunities coming out of America. It may be that Donald Trump changes his message significantly, and it, it already seems as though he is doing this morning. He'll chameleonize himself into this uh, more friendly, reasonable world leader who's willing to get along with, with other countries and other people. And if that's the case and stability returns, then maybe the opportunities will reduce. I suspect, however, that in some ways he will be very disruptive and cause some big problems. And, and those areas that he causes problems in will feel the effects of that, certainly during his presidency. But I expect over the medium term for those issues to go away again. He may introduce some some horrible policies. I don't know. Maybe he gets rid of... Medicare, I expect a lot of the health insurers in the States have taken a good pounding this morning. But most of those issues are likely to be relatively short to medium term issues and values likely to return to those assets with time. Okay, so in this podcast, I've spoken about how I analyse deals both from the, the cash flow side and the capital side and looked at various different asset classes within the, the capital and income sphere. Talked about gold, commodities, talked about watches, properties, oil. And my analysis of those types of investments is key 
to, I feel that the money that I generate for myself and our business, and I think the, the more that you can understand how those income streams and how those capital values are driven in any asset class over a period of time, that will see you and your family making the most money and, and being the most secure over the long term. I've got lots more to talk to you on this topic. I'm going to make it a, a two-part podcast. So the second half of this podcast will come out shortly. I'm going to be talking about how you work out the ROI, why the cash on cash return is so important, why leverage is key. I'm going to talk about how long cash flows last, how you scale investments, how you should start, and then as the investment matures over time, how you should treat it, how the capex is important to analyze, and the taxation treatment of all these different asset classes. That is key to your decision making and, and, and should be something you focus on when we're making investments for the long term. So again, I've really enjoyed delivering this information to you. It's been Mark for Mark My Words. I'll be doing part two on the, the next podcast. So tune in for that. If you want to see any more information or see what I'm up to, www.progressiveproperty.co.uk. And clearly I've got my own Facebook page, which is Mark Homer. And we've got a, a Rob and Mark Twitter page as well. Mark Homer for Mark My Words.